isn't it? Just to kind of recap, uh, the first morning together we were looking up about who God is, who God isn't. I thought you were having some kind of outburst. <clears throat> no. So yeah, morning one was who God is. Then it'd be come to that one. Has anybody been here? The whole slog. We are honoured. The whole slog. Day two, we were looking at um, looking sideways, us as the people of God in the context um, of community and in church history and how we look around us when we plan our services. Yesterday, we were looking inward about the heart and character of a worship leader. And uh, today on our final morning together, we are looking outward, exploring the inextricable link between worship, mission and social justice. And if you've missed any of those, you can order those um, through Spring Harvest and uh, you can get the whole series, you know, if you miss us when you go home. And you can just play it over and over and over and hear me and the bishop's soothing tones. What a horrendous thought. <laughs> but the Essential Christian Stand has all the CDs on it if you really want them. I do. So uh, my first question this morning is, why are worship and justice even related? I uh, feel like when I get a bit sleepy, I have to just move around. I'm going to try not to obscure the screen with my strange hair. Um, why are they related? I know we've talked about this a lot, haven't we, as a kind of British church community over the last few years. Anybody been exploring thoughts on worship and justice, on worship as a lifestyle? Raise a hand if that's kind of been on your mind. Um, we, uh, we've been in an interesting season of singing lots of songs, haven't we, in this kind of charismatic worship period over the last 20, 30 years, where we now spend more time singing and often singing in blocks. Um, and uh, it's been important for us to realise that worship is... I think I'd better sit down. I don't feel safe. I'm falling apart this morning. Carry on. Don't I'm mind me. I'm sit in my little spot in case my chair breaks. Um, we've been exploring as the church the fact that worship is so much more than singing, haven't we? Anybody resonate with that? Worship is more than the singing of songs. It's a life practice. And that means that not only is it something we do when we gather, it's something we do in our exterior lives. It's an outward thing as well as an inward thing and an upward thing. If, we, if our worship is only about God or about each other as the people of God, we're missing a huge part of what worship's about. It's actually about serving God, not only in the walls of the church, but outside the church. If you've got a Bible here or uh, some kind of digital form of the Bible, my Bible is on here, but that makes me feel a little bit less legit when I'm on the platform. And I think people worry that I'm playing Angry Birds or on Twitter, but I'm not, genuinely reading the Bible and my notes. Um, Amos chapter 5 talks about God's opinion of our singing, of our worship, when it doesn't involve righteousness and justice. And uh, he describes it being like a terrible noise in his ears. He says, I hate your festivals. I despise your religious gatherings. It basically is like him saying, I hate it when you have a conference. If... Your hands are covered in blood. If you exploit your workers, if you pay them unfairly, if your life isn't married to a passion for justice. He says when, when we're operating out of injustice and unconcern for the world, when we gather together, it doesn't sound beautiful to him. It actually sounds like a terrible noise. That's quite a wake-up call for us, isn't it, as a bit of a conference culture. You know, we love getting together, don't we, having these big events but it's important to say, how does, how does this all affect the heart of God? Is it as great for him as we think it is? And Amos 5 tells us that unless there is a passion for justice, unless there's an outward focus to what we do, actually, it might not be such a beautiful sound in his ears as we think. So Amos 5 is a great scripture to just read from now, um, now and then as a worship leader to remind us that it's not enough to just have a great music group or have a great selection of songs. We have to be in our own lives matching this with a passion for the world out there, don't we? Anybody agree? <clears throat> Last night we, uh, we focused on Isaiah 58. And uh, to me, that kind of is a great scripture in, in tandem to Amos 5. It's like Amos 5 gives us the problem that when our worship is not married to justice, it's a, it's a terrible din in God's ears. Amos 5 is the problem, and then Isaiah 58 is the answer, it's the solution, it's the blueprint. We followed that yesterday, didn't we? Yesterday night in the big top. In Amos 5, God says what he doesn't want, and in Amos 58, um, Isaiah 58, God says what he does want. 
I read it out last night. It was the second scripture reading. This is the fast that I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to break off the yoke, to, to untie the cords that bind, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked and not turn away our eyes from our own flesh. And the promise at the end of that is, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will come quickly. The glory of the Lord will cover you. You'll cry out to the Lord and he'll say, here I am. So Isaiah 58 gives us the answer. It's, this is the kind of worship God is looking for. And it doesn't actually mention singing, does it? So we established on the, the first day together that singing is very important. He, you know, God commands us, sing to the Lord a new song. But here in Isaiah 58, we're getting an insight into what really, really, really matters to the heart of God. And it is something far beyond singing. It's a, it's a lifestyle of love and of justice, of being his hands and feet to the world out there. And worship is for God, isn't it? It's for his delight. So it's important that we ask him, what kind of worship are you even looking for, Lord? What does it mean to be someone that ministers to your heart? And we call ourselves worship leaders, don't we? And uh, in my opinion, that means we are the ones that bring God pleasure. That would probably be my definition of a worship leader. You know, ones that point to God, that bring him glory, that bring him pleasure. It's bringing him worth. Worthship is the old uh, definition of of worship, isn't it? Um, So what does actually God derive pleasure from? What actually brings delight to the heart of God, if that's our job description? The vehicle of some of it is singing. But Isaiah 58 tells us that the main thing, the fast that he has chosen, his first choice, is actually this list of things in Isaiah 58. So if we really are worship leaders in the truest sense, not only will we be leaders of singing, but we will be leaders of justice. Anybody agree with that? So if we're called to lead people in bringing God worth... Not only are we called to lead music, but we must be called to lead God's people in acts of mercy and justice. That's been a huge challenge to me over the last few years because I've been very, very busy leading people in music. And I don't have any time to get involved in acts of justice. Does anybody agree with that? (laughs) Just running from thing to thing to thing, choosing songs, you know, trying to pay the bills. And uh, then thinking, oh no, there's this whole other thing that I need to be involved in. Part of it for me is now reflected in working with Compassion. You'll have seen the Blue Elephant, and they've become quite a big part of my life, and I now do a day a week working with them. Um, and that, for me, kind of is a good, it's a good match, you know, teaming up the singing with, with the realities of actually fixing a broken life, a broken child. You know, every child that gets sponsored is transformed. It's amazing. So my question uh, for you guys, uh, first one this morning, to help... Shake off the sleepiness of Butlins if those seagulls took away some key hours of, uh, you know, REM sleep for you last night. Um, have you ever really thought about your role as a worship leader involving looking outward? When you think about your role and your calling, bringing worth, bringing delight to God's heart, do you only think of it in terms of singing or have you ever thought... What does bring delight to God's heart? Have you ever thought about Isaiah 58? And have you ever seen that as part of what you're called to do? How do you, how do you define worship leader? Can you match that in your head? And, uh, and kind of what, what could that look like in your life? It's a lot of questions, but just kind of explore the ones that most uh, resonate with you, your calling, what it means, whether you've thought about worship and justice and how you could activate that when you get home. We'll take a couple of minutes to... Uh, chat to one another and uh, explore that. So uh, ready, steady, go. It's a conversation starter necessarily, but uh, it might be. Let's see what you have to say. Hi, I'm, I'm a GP in a practice that actually is set in an old Anglican church. And um, it's a church, high church, you wouldn't go there thinking their worship was brilliant, but they have got a group called St Cuthbert's Helping Hands, which is people who will go out into the community and help people. But not only that, they've actually surrendered their building for the community. You know, we've got the surgery in it, we've got a children's centre in it, we've got the whole communities there, and the church meet up in a room right at the top now. The rest of the church is for the community. And I wouldn't necessarily have thought of that as worship, but, but, you know, on this definition, that's the best definition of worship that I actually can think of. 
Thank you. That's a good example of uh, how the things come together. Others want to contribute on this? Yeah, we've, uh, our church has become involved with the food bank. Um, and it's, um, I mean, there are big food banks stationed all over the place, but um, you can start in your own local church just by bringing in food that you then take to one of these food banks, which means that basically it's distributed to those who really need it in your local communities. And it's, um, it is, it's, it's a really direct way of, of, of combating injustice, I think, for those who are desperately poor and desperately in need. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? Uh, we were saying really, it's as worship leaders, it's quite easy to pull at the heartstrings, but it's getting the practical involvement aspect to it that can be the really difficult bit to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what Vicky was getting at, really, isn't it? That, that uh, you know, how we tie these things together is quite difficult. And all the time, the pressure on the way we live our lives is to create a dualism. Um, and it's kind of it's something we've inherited uh, in our Christian understanding. You know, Spring Harvest tries to teach, uh, the Bible tries to teach a holistic faith. But there are pressures all the time to say, well, actually, what you do in worship is over here and how you live your life is over there and uh, I think the, the tie-up between the two is really really important. Um, I think in terms of sort of it, as a worship leader on a Sunday morning depending on how much control you have of the service I mean in our church the worship leader really has control of the whole service other than the sermon and that does give opportunities to have a a spot on an issue and to involve things in the intercessions. Um, I was leading worship a, a month or two ago and at the same time was heavily involved in some fair trade things I do separately in the middle of fair trade fortnight and only realised two or three days before the Sunday morning that I hadn't married the two together and was able to find a video clip and link that into the intercessions. But I kind of nearly missed that because I was doing the two things separately. Brilliant. Thank you. That's a very good example, isn't it? And um, I, I guess it's all back to this, you know, what do we call, call ourselves? You know, sung worship. Let's move into a time of worship. No, because the whole service is worship. Let's move into a time of sung worship. Yes, but if you're not careful, the sung worship happens over here and the rest of the service happens over there, but happily you saw the tie-up. So it, it, it's helping define the fact that the whole of what we do on a Sunday morning is A, linked to the whole of life, and B, isn't just expressed in music. Uh, and constantly the battle is to make sure that there's something which, which hangs together as a whole. Which I think is where we're going next, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's go. Let's go. The, this is a this is then a bit more about how it all links together. Um, one of the jobs I do, I can't remember. I said this to you before, is that um, uh, when the new songs come for the Spring Harvest uh, Praise Book each year, uh, there's a sort of two-stage process. Vicky works with the musicians. Tell us about that. Just to, just what you do. Yeah, well, as you know, we're a theme-based event, and uh, I do lead worship at a lot of different events in this country, and uh, there aren't very many that are theme-based, so it does make our song process a bit different, because we're looking at Route 66 this year. Obviously, we'd be looking for songs that, you know, preferably had a bit of a theme either on the Bible or that are just very scripturally rich. Uh, next year, we're looking at Church Actually as our title, so I know we'll be looking for songs that kind of explore a bit about what the church says. Obviously, it doesn't have to be only songs that are very much on that theme, but we do want stuff, don't we, that kind of reflects the, the teaching and, uh, and the theme of the whole week. So um, we take subscription, um, what do you call it, submissions, see it's the end of the week, um, from anybody. So anybody can send their songs into um, Elevation. It's quite easy to get the address. You can just Google it. Um, it's an address in Uckfield, and uh, you can send them in on a CD or an MP3 or whatever you want to do, and they do get listened to, and uh, we have a group of people who sit down, There's a few of us are musicians, a few of us aren't, and we take a couple of days to listen to hundreds and hundreds of songs. I think there was about six of us on it this year, actually, um, and we were all given a hundred songs each to listen to before we got to the, to the two days, which uh, was quite awful, has to be said. <laughs> um, I never wanted to hear another song. I was like, it doesn't matter whether it's worship or not, just silence, please, Lord. Um, so we, we each go through this, these 100 songs, make notes on them, decide whether they are a yes, a maybe, or a no, 
and then we all get together for two days and uh, we listen to the yeses and the maybes together uh, and then we narrow it down and narrow it down and uh, that's kind of how, how the songbook comes into being. We have 100 songs in there, 75 of them are new this year. Uh, we have a new songs album with uh, 22 songs on it. So uh, that's kind of where we're going with the hundreds and hundreds that get sent in. They get narrowed down to 75 new ones in the book and 22 new ones on the CD. And that happens, like I said, kind of with a bunch of us in the room going, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? And hopefully having a, a real representative demographic of age, of church experience, so that it's not just a few people with the same mindset choosing the songs. And uh, obviously also we try and pick up on the good, good new stuff that's coming around from other streams as well. So sometimes you'll uh, hear stuff here which may have hit new wine last summer first because obviously you know, they get their new songs in as well. Uh, I get involved in the process uh, later on uh, because I try and do, vet them for theology and lyrics. Um, uh, and so, because um, I haven't got the benefit of the tune necessarily, though I can get to that. Uh, but sometimes you read the lyrics and you think, you cannot be serious. <laughs> uh, and also, you read the theology and you think, I'm not sure that actually works, theologically speaking. And so I, I tend to go through them and chuck a few back and say, look, we really can't sing that, that's ridiculous. And then I get told it's a really, really a big song in America, but that's just how it is. There was. <laughs> There was actually one specific song. I don't know if you were planning to touch on this, but... Um, well, go on. I can't remember what it was. Because I remember we were sitting in the room listening to these songs, and there was one that we thought, oh, this is a great song. It really, really works. But then um, one of the lines in it said, your grace is my reward. Your grace is my reward. And when you're listening to songs, especially if you've listened to about 700 of them in the last 48 hours, you can kind of go, that just sounds pleasant, you know. It's just a good phrase. It sounds like I wish I chucked that one back, didn't I? But, right. but Pete, you know, the bloodhound, <laughs> sniffed that one out. You know, like because grace is not our reward. Grace is what gives us stuff from God, uh, and God does grace. Thank you to this lovely lady for getting me a bottle of water. Let's give her a round of applause. Hey. You rock. Yeah, so Pete basically sent the song back, and... Uh, we were, I mean, when, we, when you deal with songwriters, me being one of them, we know that we're quite a creative bunch, quite sensitive. And uh, if somebody kind of, you know, is a theological bloodhound, sniffs out a heresy in your lyrics, um, there is a sense of slight awkwardness because Pete said, well, the rest of the song's great. Let's go back to this writer who we shan't name and uh, say, we love your song, but this one lyric isn't theologically correct. How about you change it and then we would love to use your song? And I was like, awkward. You know, this person's probably going to have a mental breakdown. This is just <laughs> not good. But Pete said, let's try it. And it actually worked, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah, so the writer changed that one line. And uh, do you remember what it was changed to? I can't remember. We found a way forward. Yeah, he I, just I try and suggest ways of, of re reshaping it so theologically mm -hmm. it actually becomes true. Yeah. And now we're left with a... <laughs> But the, the writer actually blogged about it and he said that it was a good experience because he realised how seriously Spring Harvest take doctrine in their songs. He was impressed by that and uh, he actually now prefers the song in its new form. So win-win, as they say in America. But that does bring you on to the, the theological content and, and, the, and the kind of themes we sing. Uh, and I want to just take a moment and talk about um, how... Dum, dum, dum. The mix of stuff that we uh, put together works. Uh, so let's look at uh, what I've called worship and the big story. You may, you may actually, of course, remember the big story stuff. We talked about it at Spring Harvest a few years ago. Uh, but the big story is saying, if you take the Bible, the Bible has a series of themes all the way through it, which kind of tell how we are uh, in relation to God. Um, and if you check the stuff that we provide in terms of sung worship, does it reflect all of the big story? And the answer is that actually sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I'd love to get you involved in this because you may have some ideas about this. Uh, but the, the big story of the Bible starts off uh, with creation. It talks about God the creator and we have songs that reflect that. Now interestingly, uh, if you look at the back of the Spring Harvest Songbook, it gives you the sort of thematic index which many of you will go to if you're choosing uh, stuff for a worship service that's themed. Uh, and what you find is that quite often there's a gap in some areas and there's a huge amount of stuff in others because songwriters tend to go with 
inspiration without necessarily thinking what needs writing for a particular theme. Uh, Vicky touched on this yesterday, no, the day before, when we were talking about how service flows together. You know, do we need to write more stuff to fit areas where there isn't very much? Now, oddly, there isn't an awful lot, if you look in the, the Spring Harvest Songbook this year, of new stuff on creation. Uh, and we're quite short on that sort of thing. So, in fact, you have to go to stuff like All Creatures of Our God and King, an ancient hymn uh, based on St. Francis of Assisi, uh, in order to get um, some good creation stuff. Uh, and I wonder, you know, can, can you think of good new stuff that works that speaks about creation? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that, she, of course, she, she, you later. she is the heroine here because... Uh, she listens to this and she writes stuff about it. And, and there I've been around too. the bishop, that's what it's really all about. Uh, but there ain't much more. So I, I would want to see us looking at more stuff on creation, and in particular more stuff on creation which reflects the stuff about creation care, because if we believe that our environment is important, and we do, uh, and we try and do stuff on that, there isn't an awful lot of stuff on, on, that helps us reflect on uh, our The, that was the porridge for breakfast, I think. Definitely wasn't me. Is it me or, or is it just interference? Could be he's, look, he's looking gnomic. Aliens landing. <laughs> Second one, if you then go through scripture, the whole thing about fall and our need of redemption, which was uh, a big feature, obviously, on people, for people writing songs uh, back in the Wesleyan revival and Victorian times. Um, uh, and again, not so much stuff is being written about that. Now, there's a, partly there's a, there's a reason for that, and that is that our postmodern society, we don't talk much about sin uh, and fallenness. So is there a way in which you can write hymns which are more reflective of our need and dependence upon God? Uh, because uh, it gets expressed a little bit, but it isn't around as much as it ought to be. So how do you express stuff about the fall uh, which uh, will tell the story well? Here's another big one, the incarnation. So often our, our hymns and songs about Jesus are focused mainly on his death, on his resurrection, or on worshipping Jesus as the Jesus who's our king now, and we'll come on to that. I would love to see us having much more stuff that helped us uh, with his life, his teaching, uh, which speaks about uh, what he did and what he said while here on earth, uh, which talks about the kingdom of God, uh, and which enables us to praise God for that stuff. Uh, because, again, I, I fear we don't help people uh, reflect on that in our songs. Uh, so if you look up um, what there is about Jesus, uh, interestingly, the, the index in here is just Jesus dash cross and resurrection and I'm saying where's Jesus the healer where's Jesus the teacher uh, where's Jesus uh, and his example and his life someone like Graham Kendrick works quite hard on this and that is interesting that there are there are particular songwriters I, I think of Graham Vicky obviously is is doing a lot of work in this area um, to a certain extent Matt Redman does a bit of this uh, the Gettys uh, do quite a lot, but uh, the numbers of folk who try and touch on areas of theology uh, in their songwriting is not great, uh, and you, you might find that quite difficult to find stuff. The cross. Now, let me tell you my bleat about the cross. Why is it that no songwriter can just write about Jesus' death without jumping to his resurrection in the second verse? Uh, it, it's almost impossible to find modern stuff that would actually work with Good Friday. Now, I, I think there's a kind of psychological problem that Christians have, you know, that, that actually we can't live Good Friday. And here we are on the, on, the, on the darkest day of the year if you live the Christian calendar. Jesus is in the grave. He's dead. Can we live with that? Can our songwriting live with that? Can our worship live with that? On Good Friday, can we just say, here is a day when Jesus died without having to say, oh, by the way, sneak preview, he's back on Sunday. <laughs> you don't need to say that. 
It's very interesting that, again, the stuff in the songbook on death and resurrection, there's one, uh, there's two things called Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Uh, and I'm not, you know, picking these out particularly to be rude to people, but Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your cleansing blood, washed away my sin. Now I'm forgiven. You bring life where there's death. You give peace for brokenness. I was lost. Uh, I will now follow Jesus. Jesus, my salvation's joy, paid the debt of sin for all, washed me white as snow, I'm forgiven. Now, that's a very good example of writing good stuff about focusing on what Jesus did on the cross. It doesn't need to say any more. It has hints of the life we are given through the cross, but it doesn't then immediately leap to the resurrection. Here's the next one also, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you for the cross. You took our sin and healed our brokenness on that great day saved us from the enemy you tore down death you rose in victory up from the grave hold on you don't need to say that <laughs> you could actually just stay with the death with what he did um, and, and uh, you know it was interesting that when we worshipped yesterday we sang when I survey the wondrous cross which does precisely the job that you need to focus on the cross now I may just be an old-fashioned old fart um, <laughs> who thinks that we ought to be able to stay with the stuff but actually the pattern of Christian life is that we're called to death and we're called to suffer with Jesus and we're called to go through the experience of that death and, and we need to give people the pastoral help to know that when uh, we go through the depths of darkness and despair God has been there with us in Jesus' death on the cross and the reason we can actually help people who are struggling in their life is because Jesus died uh, and if we're too easy to leap to the resurrection stuff, um, then we get into trouble. It was even in the big top last night. It was interesting that uh, I think uh, one of our, our songs went, went off to resurrection again when we were doing Good Friday worship. So stuff on the cross we need. There's plenty of stuff on resurrection, though actually not a lot of stuff about the, the detail of resurrection. What will you, if, if you were planning a service of worship with modern songs uh, for tomorrow morning, where would you go? Greatest day in history is usually where we go because that's, you know, wonderful Tim Hughes uplifting stuff and we, we, we'll probably do that tomorrow. Sneak preview. Um, uh, but uh, when we, before Tim Hughes wrote that, we were using Noel Richards' He Has Risen he has risen, which is again a fantastic anthem, but it's quite old in worship song tones. And there ain't much that's happened in between. Come on, give us some other ones that you can think of. Oh, what a morning. Yes, that's that. Is that Kendrick, isn't it, I think? Yes, Getty. Any others? Don't know that one. My Redeemer lives. Is that a new one or an old one? Okay. Darling, check. I love that. They have some fantastic names, these guys, don't they? Yeah. Vicky Beach is quite normal by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> so not huge numbers is what I'm saying. Again, something will help you burst into the resurrection story and the resurrection life, which you need for Easter Sundays. And if you're an Anglican or a Methodist, you need for the next five or six Sundays as well, because we carry on celebrating the resurrection, not just on Easter Day, but through. So where are the songs that tell us about the resurrection, what happened, the empty tomb, uh, the risen Jesus? There aren't huge numbers, is all I'm saying. Um, much of our stuff assumes Jesus risen from the dead, but doesn't tell the story of Jesus risen from the dead. Whereas, in fact, of course, we have a load of stuff on the ascension uh, and the next one, the session, as, as theologians call it, which actually just means Jesus is seated and is reigning as king. Uh, if I had a, a quid for every worship song that said, Jesus, you're king, Jesus, you're ascended, Jesus, you're wonderful, Jesus, you're reigning, um, there'd be an awful lot of money in my pocket because we, we've majored on that. There's a lot of money in some of those people's pockets. Yeah, I'm sure they've, they've, they've got a lot. <laughs> Evidently. Uh, but it does mean the diet is slightly skewed because actually it's not the most important doctrine about Jesus. I mean, it's true and it's great. Though, of course, it's also... It doesn't reflect the, the, the reality of what we are as Christians. Jesus reigns, yes. But he doesn't yet reign over everything. 
We're waiting. We're living in that what, what the theologians call the already but the not yet. He's already established his kingdom, but the kingdom is not yet fulfilled. And yet a lot of our worship songs take us to that place which says, Jesus, you're reigning, you're king. Uh, and almost take us as kind of unreality that doesn't, doesn't deal with the fact that the world is yet provisional uh, and isn't in a state uh, where Jesus is reigning and king. So if you're not careful, your worship gets taken to a plane that kind of doesn't engage with the here and now. Uh, now, there are great, some great songs there, and I, and I love singing songs about Jesus as king, but we've had more of those than, uh, than we might have actually perhaps wanted. And, and then the, where's the new heavens and the new earth stuff? We're a bit short on that one too. Um, if you wanted to sing about Jesus coming back, where would you go? What would you sing for Jesus' return? Great is the darkness, which of course is theologically suspect. Have I, try, have I tried this one on you? Uh, I'm sorry because it's, it's Gerald Coates, but uh, it is a line in Great is the Darkness that says uh, that we might haste your return. You can't speed up Jesus' return. He's going to come when he wants to or when the Father determines it. We're told that in Scripture. You can't make Jesus come back. Uh, and and uh, one of the things I did in our church when we were singing that was to, to remake it. So it became that as we await your return, because in the end it's, it's God who's sovereign in when Jesus comes back. I think you are a songwriter in disguise, aren't you? No, I'm just picky. <laughs> I shared what we did with um, Father God, I Wonder. I'm, I wonder on that one. We, we found in our church that we loved singing Father God, I Wonder How I Ever Could, How I Managed to Exist, yeah? Father God, I Wonder How, yeah. Uh, but we found that Ishmael's writing did not match with people's experience. Because for many people who'd grown up in the church, they'd never had a conversion experience per se. They'd just grown into being a Christian. So singing Father God, I Wonder How I Managed to Exist and now I am your child, I am adopted in your family, is true for those people like me who've had a conversion experience, but doesn't work if you've lived in the church all your life. So we changed it to, Father God, I wonder how I ever could exist, but since I am your child, I'm adopted in your family. And that then covers the case, both for people who are Christians lifelong, uh, and for those who've come to faith uh, from not knowing Jesus. Um, it's about songs echoing theological reality. Uh, how much do you need to remake these things? Yeah, I was just going to throw in a really quick thought. Um, it might seem in some degrees that this is kind of nitpicking and you're thinking, well, does it really matter this much? But just to hark back to what we were saying a few days ago about the aliens and the songbook and uh, painting a picture of God and kind of setting the doctrinal future of the church through what we sing, it being a bit like Chinese whispers. If we do let a lot of these things slide, it is like a Chinese whisper, isn't it? Going around this whole room, it could come out completely different. And if we don't catch these things, and if we don't stay true to painting an accurate theological picture of who our God is and who he isn't, then that we're actually passing something on to the future generations that is inaccurate. So I used to think that people like Pete were just picky, but now I've fully had a conversion experience to myself become a song lyric bloodhound, and uh, I think it's very important. Anyway, you've heard my rant. <laughs> Have a chat among yourselves. What are, what are the things that challenge you when you as a worship leader are choosing songs? What are the issues that come up? Where, where are the gaps that we need to try and fill as we try and resource the church for good worship? A conversation about that, anything you want to talk about in relation to uh, the choice of songs that we use and how we do them. Have a go at that. Just to hold forth in discussion about songs and how we choose them and what that's all about. One of the sensitivities in our church, uh, and I think you picked up on this earlier in the week, is the, uh, the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of themes, where this use of romantic uh, imagery. Um, I've never been a lad's lad. I, I've always believed that real men love Jesus. Uh, but uh, uh, there are other, uh, other people in our congregation who don't, just don't identify with some of the, that sort of romantic imagery in worship. And so we've been trying to strike uh, that, that balance in the choice of uh, lyrics that we use. 
Do others have difficulty with the snog me Jesus stuff? It's there, isn't it? There was, somebody did produce a song, which Vicky will know about, it's an American song, uh, which, where it's the, with, with the lyrics, Jesus loves us with a sloppy wet kiss. It's true. I, I kid you not. Well, it was actually metaphorical, so it's a song called How He Loves. You've probably heard it. He loves us, oh, how he loves us. Fantastic chorus, the verse says, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. So it's not actually saying, you know, but, it, but uh, was, it was past the sick bucket in Mabel, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but they have actually changed it, and um, if, you've, if you've heard the David Crowder version, it now says, Heaven meets Earth like an unforeseen kiss. That was me. I, I, I threw that one back. You didn't get the credit for it. <laughs> There's no money in this stuff, I tell you. Anyway, we, we're just on the Jesus is my boyfriend stuff. Not quite Jesus is my boyfriend, but we have people in church who really d won't sing songs that don't mention Jesus, God or Christ, the, the, the words mm. Jesus, God or Christ in them. Yeah. And there are a lot of really lovely worship songs that talk about worship, mm. and, um, but don't mention uh, God or Christ. And the other one that we struggle with is, um, what was the word I was, um, it's uh, revival. Some people will not sing the word with the word revival in songs, mm. and there's some fantastic songs that, that are about revival. You know, Robin Mark and people like that do some superb songs, and you see people just sitting there. I'm not singing that song. It's got the word revival in it. I'm not singing it. I, I mean, I think there is an issue about. Uh, I don't think every song has to contextualise itself by making sure that you make a reference to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I do think that sometimes our songs could be sung in a Hindu service or because if it's just you are wonderful, you are great God, or, or not even God, you are great. Uh, and we contextualize them because they're in the, in the medal of Christian worship. Yeah. Uh, but there is this sense in which what are you taking away from that if you're not actually recognizing that you're teaching people by what they sing mm. and that therefore the name of Jesus could possibly re be referenced a bit more. But I think you're right, you know, it, it's not compulsory, it hasn't got to be mentioned, but you would, we need to help people to realise that what they're doing is put themselves inside the Christian story and not just a story of singing to some vacant deity or some vacant somebody out there. Which mm. a lot of, I mean, yep. what do you think about that? I think there's been a bit of a trend of these kind of crossover type songs that are kind of cool and a bit more rock and roll because they sound like you could be singing about anybody. So I think there has been a bit of a trend of trying to steer away from religious language and kind of have these songs sound like, sound like love songs but are in fact usable in a Christian context. Um, I, I agree with Pete. I think if we are singing about God, we need to sing about God and make it clear and focus on actually who he is and not just more of the kind of emotives about it. I think on the revival one, I mean, the, the, why shouldn't we be praying and singing about revival? I mean, there might be a hype about it in the sense that quite a lot of songs almost assume that God's going to revive the, the, the world tomorrow, you know, but, but actually we should be praying that God will have a, a move of his spirit which will change and, and transform our society and, and bring people to him. So there's nothing wrong with singing about revival. Um, probably the, the, the assumption that revival's already happening is the one that's more difficult because actually it ain't. And, and you know, the, the, there are stories of, of, of true moves of God's spirit throughout the world, but we're not experiencing that. But we ought to be praying and working towards God doing stuff in our country, yeah. I think, shouldn't we? You know, that's sort of why I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to say on what you said, actually, about really looking at the theology of songs and looking at the song lyrics, and I think that that's so important, and I am really glad that Spring Harvest do that. It's my first time here, and I think I've really been able to relax because the, the lyrics are so... They're sound, so you can just sing them without thinking, hang on a minute... I don't agree with that. And, but I think with song choice, um, it's great that there are so many new songs and that songs are being written every day, but to maybe try not to forget certain classics, like, for example, Easter Sunday, we always sing to our church at home, Thine Be the Glory. And a lot of people I know would say, oh, well, we've done that every year and it's boring. And, you know, but at the end of the day, the lyrics sum it up, I think, beautifully. You know, um, 
for me personally, and I think it's good not to forget that. I think you only have to look at how the big top takes off when we sing a traditional hymn. That you, you guys love the new stuff, but actually there are moments when we go into a traditional hymn and everyone goes, yes, we're away, you know. Um, so don't neglect the old. Yeah, we were, we were talking about that issue and also the fact that a lot of the modern songs, well, firstly, they're, they're very personal to the writer. They sometimes are difficult to engage in as a congregation. And also they jump around octaves like you can't believe. It makes them very difficult to sing. Um, and... Um, yeah, and I went back to, uh, and some of them are very, very simplistic as well. They, uh, the, the, the theology is a little bit on the lacking side, as we've just been talking about. So it makes it difficult. Yet we've got congregations who, who are mixed, who some of them want to sing old songs, some of them just want to sing new songs. So it's a bit of a nightmare, really, as a worship leader, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, it's interesting on the, uh, the octave jumps. It's, it's funny how you can kind of trace different uh, trends back to different, Bands, and I know for a lot of the worship songwriters, you too were actually an inspiration in terms of the octave jump. Um, if anybody listens to you too, um, Bono will um, just kind of light up the whole arena that he's in by having a, a melody, maybe a verse that is in a low octave, and then you just see him jump up the octave. And, it, and he says that he does it because you can't sing that high half-heartedly. You have to sing it with everything you've got. So he'll actually make these big jumps and he'll pitch parts of the song so high that you have to yell it out. It's a bit like the hymns, isn't it? You get to the choruses and often there are parts that you just can't really sing softly. You have to just give it all, you know, everything you've got. So I know a lot of people have embraced that and uh, it is vocally a bit more challenging, isn't it? But it does create that lift in the room when you go from a low octave to a high one. Actually, Blessed Be Your Name does it quite well. The verse is in one octave, and then the chorus in is, is in another, and it gives a sense of lift. But I agree with you. We need to be careful we don't do that too much because it is vocally a bit of a, uh, a challenge for some people. Would that, I mean, the Mountains Trembling one last night presumably is a similar thing, is it? Exactly that, the same, yep. Because, yep. Uh, and yet, if you want to express your desire for justice in a celebratory way, it's a classic uh, and again, we found we had to go back to something fairly old, you know, in, in yeah. Christian song terms. It's a fabulous thing, but we need some more songs that are, are, are proclaiming justice in the here and now. So there's another little gap somewhere. Um, this session in itself has actually been a huge answer to prayer for me. Um, we're planning a, a church holiday in August where my husband and I are music leaders and we also have worship leaders as well as a theme leader. So we have three different jobs and it's kind of delineation between you know who's doing what. And the worship leader has been really getting on our backs about singing songs with the right theology and everything else. I mean, this has really, really put my mind at rest. But the one thing I wanted to ask, and it might be a bit of a dumb question and people might think, but I'm going to ask it anyway is practically where do we stand of, of changing people's written lyrics are we legally allowed to do that are we writing a new song you know is it is it okay to change the odd few words if we're not happy with the theology i don't know <laughs> peach didn't know about that he's been at well, that for years <laughs> have you done any time for your work I, i've not been I've not been banged up for it yet. I, mean, I think, yes, technically, if, if most of us obviously use CCLI licensing for uh, getting permission for using songs on PowerPoint or on overhead projector or whatever. Um, and the CCLI thing does indicate you're meant to use the songs as written. So there, there is a problem about that. You, of course, you all get copyright, don't you? If you don't, that's why I can't well, pay my no, rent. No, 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 otherwise, <laughs> but, but, but I, I think... A little, I mean, what's the difference between the misprints you get when people stick stuff on PowerPoint, which they do, you've got misprints in the big top occasionally, you know, where the, the thing's not, not up on the words properly, uh, and just mending a word here and there. Mm. Um, I, I have no, I, I'm not repentant about that, but I could be banged up for it, presumably. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that it, it's helpful. I mean, where, where one can engage with a songwriter and say, look, I've got a problem about this, and, and, and this would be my suggestion about how you might change it, so be it. But obviously, lots of these songs are now definitive. Uh, Ish has never actually come back to me on my mending of Father God, I wonder. I think in terms of um, song choice, I think it ties very well into what we were talking about yesterday and accountability and being leaders. Um, 
in terms of having the courage to challenge someone who has sung something that maybe you don't agree with, but also being vulnerable and open for people to come to you and say, hang on, uh, why did you choose that song? And I think it all does tie in together because we need to have that willingness and openness and vulnerability to be challenged and to be, um, yeah, willing to be corrected, but also to be bold enough to uh, say something to somebody else if you don't agree with what they've chosen. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. Other challenges about worship choosing and uh, music? Um, I think with the octave changes, in a place like the Big Top, it's a lot easier to get away with songs that go from low to high, because you can, you can really only hear yourself when you sing, so it makes you less self-conscious about uh, what you're singing and how loud you're singing. But like in a smaller church like mine, I have a real problem with, I want to be able to put the music louder, because some of the congregation are a lot older, and then they, I get a lot of moans about the music was too loud and things like that. It's a lot harder to get away with the big octave jumps. Yep because of people not liking the loud music, which makes them more self-conscious if you do do those songs. Um, so you've got to f make sure you find the right balance between the, mm. the, the yeah. la volume of the music and the type of song you're singing, I think. Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually. I think Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble is a classic example of that. I've heard of countless people that have been to big events and sung it out at the top of their lungs and then tried to use that song in their congregation of seven people. And they're kind of, you know, they're having the worship leaders having their own little moment where they're back at Spring Harvest or Soul Survivor, and then they open their eyes and there's like, you know, seven people in their 70s kind of staring at them, looking. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to be aware, don't you? And a lot of those songs, um, I think Noel Richards called it Stadium Praise years ago. There are songs that just are made for big gatherings of people. It's like U2's music is written for huge crowds to sing. It's like football songs, you know. Um, so it is a question of us knowing what is a kind of a stadium praise song and what is a song for the local church. And they don't always overlap. And when you do try and make them overlap, often it can be quite embarrassing. So uh, just know, know what works in different contexts. And, you know, some songs you do just have to save for the big gatherings because vocally they only work there. Okay. Um, my friend here, my new friend, uh, mentioned that uh, there's a couple of things. Firstly, that um, there are so many songs to choose from and can be. Mm -hmm. And the challenge certainly that I have in, in our church is actually getting them to learn a new song because there's nothing worse than putting a song up and only like two people in the whole congregation sing it. And so there's that challenge of getting a song to be more familiar mm -hmm. and that they feel comfortable with it over time so you can integrate songs into um, a congregation who perhaps um, prefer the more traditional songs. Who's got wisdom then on how you teach new stuff to the congregation? Oh, then we're getting, people down here. This is the practical stuff, isn't it? Well, what we do, we have a Thursday night Bible study with a couple of songs, and we quite often learn new things there in a more informal atmosphere. And then we've got a group of people who can help when the new song is introduced on a Sunday. What I find useful with new songs is to, I like to, um, we start the worship as people are coming in and we sing the new songs for four, four weeks or so. And by the time we introduce it, they think, oh, I, th I know this from somewhere. And they actually um, learn it by listening to it over the few weeks. And maybe at the end of the service, as people are going out, we'll sing it for a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit the pattern we try and use at Spring Harvest. You know, you get the, the opening slot where we try some stuff out and then you get them reprised in the actual uh, proper worship slot. Just, just really want to reinforce what Nigel was saying on the, um, the songwriting one, where um, you can play a chorus to teach the congregation the chorus and then you can maybe get them to do it again. And then um, oh, so before you introduce a song, give a bit of background on what it means and where it came from in the scripture. Vicky, one of the things that uh, I think I find difficult and perhaps is, is this thing about the, the level of uh, pitch um, of, of songs. Yeah. So they all seem too high for someone like me. Yeah. Can you help us with why songs are always pitched? Mm. Not, 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 
changes in the songs, but actually the, the setting of the in the first place. How do we deal with yes. that? And yeah, if people have got stuff they want to raise, you've got a musician here who can help you with it. Yeah, it's true. I think pitching your key is probably one of the most important things about worship leading, because we are supposed to be a community, aren't we? And our aim is supposed to be for us all to be able to join in. But uh, it's actually quite difficult to find a key that works for everybody. A lot of the songs are written by younger men uh, who tend to have quite a high range and obviously not pointing the finger at anybody like Tim Hughes. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, those songs are very, very high. Now, if you are a music group leader and you're a man and you're choosing songs for one of your female singers to sing, you have to change the key. Uh, otherwise, you end up with female singers leading songs that sound... Um, I think last week I compared it to a small pig squealing in pain. Um, and it's not pleasant, and it doesn't actually lend itself to people wanting women to take the lead vocally, because you're trying to sing very, very, very high. So if you are choosing a song for a woman to sing, or you're a female worship leader choosing a song to sing that was written by a man, you need to drop it at least two semitones. Depends how high or low your particular voice is. But even if you can sing it where that man wrote it, don't do that because tonally it will not be pleasant. Even if you can reach the notes, it's not a competition about how high your soprano range goes. It won't sound pleasant because it's just above our natural range and it will sound harsh and brittle. So drop it down. If you don't know how to transpose, the good news is, and this is not a sales pitch, that um, in the yes, back it is. of the... Uh, well, it kind of is, but I don't get any money from it. So... Um, in the back of the book, there's a disc this year, and uh, it's, uh, it's a new feature. It's a digi songbook, so you can put it into your PC, and uh, it will actually enable you to automatically transpose the score or the guitar chords into a totally different key. Does it not? Just the guitar chords? Oh, okay, score must be next year. Um, and also for Mac users, that also doesn't really work. So at the moment, we're, I mean, we basically dreamed this up fairly last minute and managed that for the PC users among us, which... We did a poll and actually is the majority. Any PC people in the house? Bill Gates fans? Um, Doesn't follow. <laughs> that was mainly to just wind up the, wind up the bish. Um, but yeah, I mean, next year our aim is that it will work on PC and Mac and not only will you be able to transpose guitar chords but the score as well because we've just got to make this easier for people. If you, if you want help with this also, you can go online and just Google transpose and there are a few really really good websites uh, one of them is called cordy cord ie.com and i use it all the time you can actually paste in an entire lyric and chord sheet and and drop it down to the chords um, to the transposition of your choice there's also different chord um websites if you just search guitar chords transpose there are lots of sites that will actually pull up the chords for something like happy day and ask you if you want to transpose it and i'll just hit you know minus two semitones, and it will print out a new chord chart that's all transposed. So that's very, very important, especially for us ladies. Um, just picking up on a couple of points, the lovely ambiguous um, songs that you love so much are really useful for taking worship into schools because you, you're in a difficult situation there about what can be inclusive in schools. So, um, And we're finding it hard to find enough ambiguous songs. So if you want to write some ambiguous songs, that'd be great, <laughs> that we can take into schools and put Jesus around as a context. Um, and also our AV people are trained to absolutely not allow us to change any words so it's really really helpful that that's happening at a higher up level before publishing if that can happen more that would be great because of the licensing they're saying no, no way to changing words going back to the transposing thing um we have we read from the school we have a variety of instruments so it's not just a matter of changing the chords so transposing is really hard and would take a heck of a lot of time to transpose all the songs that we play yeah, and with our, with our repertoire, because we as churches typically do draw on similar songs, don't we, that we do all have a repertoire. It's not like we use a different version of songs every single week, every year. It might even be worth, if you have a bit of budget, finding someone in your town that actually can transpose and getting them to this great software like Sibelius. Anybody lose Sibelius? Um, you can, that's pretty easy to transpose score in, in a program like that. Someone you know is probably only a couple of degrees away from you relationally, uh, and if you have 50 quid or whatever to give them to just you know put a few of your key songs do you like the use of the word key there 
few of your core songs into a better key, you'll be using those songs probably for the next 10 years because our repertoire does actually have core songs, doesn't it? So it might be worth investing a little bit of budget if you have any to just get some of those essential songs transposed for all of, in all of the instruments. It would be money well spent, I think. I've already been using a piece of software, the Song Select software from CCLI, which does exactly what we've been saying about transposing keys and does it for quite a broad range. I found that fantastic. Um, and that works for schools and leads already. I know you have to pay a little bit extra more on your licensing. But when I talked yesterday about using the young people, I found that really helped the young people engage because you could then find very straightforward keys and things like that. And so that, that works really well. Um, and that's just Song Select on the CCLI website. And I don't know how much the church pays for it, but I've found that very good. And the other thing about new songs, I found actually when you're trying to take new songs into a church, the, the personal example of the worship leader, you need to be very happy, very cheerful, very broad-shouldered and look at the people who you know are going to respond because it's quite, sometimes it gets you back. So actually trying to take people with you by being engaging and positive and uplifting is very important in teaching new songs rather than naturally defensive, which I think a lot of us can be. Who's it over here? Um, as a drummer, chords, keys, no idea whatsoever, I'll be honest. <laughs> ha however, <laughs> anyway, um, what I will say is, sorry, I had to, um, my worship leader is a, a lady, uh, Hayley, and she's fantastic. She's learning to play the guitar and uh, has, I don't mean that in a bad way, <laughs> um, she literally just picked the guitar up and started playing. But what I would say is when we do practice, her comment now is really, really true, where she keeps saying, this was written by a woman, so as it's written, um, as opposed to every other thing is change the keys, etc. So um, she will say, it's a Vicky Beeching song, so we're all right. So I just wanted to pass that on, so thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. The trick is, though, you've got to be just as wary of the songs written by women. I mean, there aren't, I mean, I go to painstaking degrees to try and figure out a key that fits for both men and women. So when I'm pitching my songs, it's not necessarily about what's best for my voice. I'll sit down with a couple of guys and say, okay, well, does this, is this now pitch too low for you? Um, where can we put it so that everybody wins? But there are now women writing songs that are coming through into the songbook that are then gonna be too low for the men to join in. So if you're a woman picking songs, just as you would with the songs written by guys, we need to make sure we're not too low and that we are finding kind of a middle ground. So I would suggest that your music group actually gives each other feedback on pitching because usually hopefully you've got guys and girls in your music group um, and don't don't assume that a song written by a woman is always going to be in the right spot i have to say this isn't a new problem because those of you who've had to suffer the indignities of trying to sing from ancient and modern it's always pitched too blooming high for anyone to sing um and, and the choir takes you there and they never seem to make any accommodation at all so uh, ancient and uh, tr traditional church music has much the same difficulty built into it for lots of us i think probably none of you use ancient and modern anymore do you well one one or two <laughs> could i just put in a request for simplicity um, not everybody belongs to a large church where you have a choice of different bands with drums and um, bass guitars and all the rest of it. And we found quite a big barrier is having bought the um, Spring Harvest music book. I've looked at it and I'm not a particularly competent player, but I know our um, piano player, is, I mean, I give it to her next, you know, when I get home, is going to look at this, the music and say, why is it so complicated? Mm. Is there any chance that sometimes some of the music that's written mm. hasn't got to be in five sharps and hasn't got to be quite so perhaps keyboard based? Mm. Um, I know it's for mo you know if this is modern music that's being written, but sometimes we feel that the uh, the biggest barrier mm. is the actual reading the music because you look at a page and mm. it's just so complicated for people who perhaps aren't professional musicians that it's mm. quite off-putting. Yeah, well, the, the good news is um, I don't read a note of music. Um, and also I come from a church where my mother is actually the only worship leader. It's one person on a keyboard in a church of 30 people. So I do do stuff like Spring Harvest, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed enough to come from a place where actually that is my same experience. And I look at these dots, dots on a page and go, what? <laughs> um, so I'm even worse than you are in, in that sense. Um, but the, the thing we've tried to do this year to try and fix that is on the New Songs album, um, at least in the kind of audio, 
one of the CDs in the double disc is, you know, it rocks out, it's complicated, it's got all the great arrangements, but the other disc in the New Songs album, uh, the 22 songs are presented on just guitar and voice, or piano and voice. So even if the score doesn't make sense, you can listen to the stripped-down version uh, of the New Songs CD and hear how it would sound in a church like my home church or yours, where we just don't have these people. You know, we literally were scraping together two musicians, not a band of seven. Um, so I do think we need to pick that up in terms of score. And I will chat with the guys who make the songbook at the office about that. Um, but I think our hope was that if people found the score too complex, they would be able to read the chords on the guitar chord sheet and just, you know, do simple kind of, um, you know, real basic chord triads around the guitar chords. Does anybody play like that? Not from score, but from guitar chord charts. Even if you're a keyboard player, that can be a kind of a bridge between the two that you don't want to follow all the notes, but you can kind of just play basic block chords and kind of do a little bit of this. That's how I play keyboard. You can see that I'm a bit rubbish. But I just play the, I play the triad kind of guitar chords and just do some stuff in the bass. And that for me is a way to break down the complexity of a score. So I hope that helps, but we're definitely working on it. I think um, going back to the pitch um, discussion, I think it's important not only for your leaders to be able to sing uh, in the key that it's written, but you've also got to be aware of your congregation. And the Trent guys are doing a great job, but a lot of their songs are going very high. So it's great if you can sing alto or you can sing a very low note, but I think that's something that does need to be fed back to the, the top people, as it were. That the congregation needs to be able to sing along to all the words, not just the verse or the bridge that might below. We want to sing the chorus as well, which tends to go a bit too high for most people. Yeah, the truth is I am the person that oversees that now, so... <laughs> so here I am and I'm listening. Are um, you listening? Yes, good. Yeah, and I do completely and utterly agree. I mean, as a woman, I can just about harmonise, but there's no way I can hit a lot of the high notes of guys that lead and I love I love their songs but it is something that I think probably if you are a guy singing and you can sing that high maybe you're not aware of because it feels easy to you but it's only when people come alongside that find it harder like like me I mean I'm trying to harmonize along to a lot of the male worship leaders that I stand and watch you know so that's definitely something we want to we want to work on um there has to be a bit of a, a fine line because the people leading the songs have to be able to sing it comfortably and well. And if it's outside of their range, it does make it difficult. And you can get away, like we said, you can get away with more in a big room because people are kind of belting it out. Um, but that is absolutely something that um, I, will, I will muse about over the next year and see how we can make it better next year. Well, this has been an experiment this year, doing a worship zone. It seems as if uh, you've enjoyed uh, the experience. Thank you for being with us uh, over the past four mornings. Uh, I guess we'll be doing something uh, more next year because the theme church actually does lend itself to looking at our worship and trying to go deeper on it. So uh, watch this space. If you've got suggestions about uh, stuff you think we ought to cover, do write in or send an email to us and uh, just uh, uh, suggest areas that might be helpful. We won't be able to do everything because we're limited by the number of seminars we can lay on and that sort of thing but uh, yeah. uh, where we're scratching where you itch tell us and where there's some scratches that need to be done we'll try and uh, put them in yeah it's actually easy to get in touch with us it's info at springharvest.org info at springharvest.org um, we're trying to figure out if we do the worship zone again in the future so it would be useful if you have enjoyed it to write in and tell us so that we know that it was helpful and uh, just to, in case you were wondering about any of these things, a couple of the kind of notes to self that we've already made is next year there needs to be a, a woodwind and strings session in the afternoon um, dealing with, you know, how do we incorporate things like clarinets, flutes, violins into our worship that was missing this year. Can we get the drummer out of the box? Can we? Get the drummer out of the box. For the, for the seminar or? But, you know, for the main it's always dangerous getting drummers out of boxes. <laughs> It's very difficult if you take him out. It's actually worse because then the bleed spills into the vocal mics and instead of hearing anybody singing, all you hear is cymbals. So it's one of those kind of, uh, you know, best of a bad situation kind of things. Um, I think they have... Uh, it's a different kind of vibe. I mean, they're in such big venues now 
Uh, and with someone like Bono, I mean, you wouldn't really care if all you were hearing was cymbals because his voice is so loud. But for the more traditionalists among our number, they would be aware of the bright cymbal frequencies coming through those vocal mics. And then it would actually, and even with hearing aids, it really affects it too. So we're really trying to deal with such a broad demographic um, that, you know, drum boxes aren't ideal to any of us, but it, it is the only way we can get a kind of palatable sound for everybody. <laughs> So thanks for being with us. Um, we've enjoyed doing it, and uh, I think uh, we've uh, engaged uh, with uh, you on loads of levels and really enjoyed having you working with us. Our thanks to the stewards who looked after us in this Ooh. venue uh, all week. Fantastic. Um, the whole future of uh, sung worship is going to be up for grabs, I guess, as the church changes, has become more informal, as cafe church moves on. Uh, you know, you now get people coming to events and saying, hmm, that was good. We enjoyed the karaoke because they weren't actually sure what we were doing when we sang. And, and uh, we had some people from a youth group who came to Spring Harvest a few years ago and uh, uh, had no clue about any of this stuff. But they thought the karaoke was wonderful, particularly in the big top. Uh, very, very disturbing. <laughs> But we know we're in a fast-moving world, and we've got to cater for what's changing, but also for what's happening in our little churches all over the country and our big churches all over the country. Uh, yeah. Bless you as you go back, and uh, we hope that you'll find that some of what we've said is, is helpful to you in your worship context going forward. Mm. I had Thanks a selfish plug us. I just wanted to throw in. If, you, if you're interested in carrying on the conversation about this, I'm, I've been blogging for the last few years about these kind of questions, things like um, how visible or invisible should we be as worship leaders, can you have non-Christians on your worship team? You know, how do you choose a set? How do you balance traditional and new? Um, so if you're interested in that, my site is vickybeaching.com and there's a, a link there where you can click on blog and it's very much a two-way street. So all the stuff we've been raising in the worship zone, I just, I want to continue that conversation through the year so this doesn't have to end here. So feel free to come on there and, and be a conversationalist as we figure this out together and a lot of what goes on there for me will be shaping what I teach here next year. So join in the conversation. Go well, have a good Holy Saturday.